Hey there, this is Coach AA, and welcome to the September 5th edition. The three things for today, starting with the critic and the other guy. Lock your hips out more. Squat deeper. You're not bracing hard enough. Your feet are turned out too much. Ah, your feet were not turned out enough. You could have put more power into that rep. And so on. The inner voice of the critic will keep going on and on and on and have an opinion about everything you do. Well, it certainly does, especially when I'm training. And I realize if it's happening during my training, which is just a microcosm, a place to learn from, a sandbox. It certainly happens during the other hours of my day. Now, of course, while the technical part of a movement can be broken down into a lot of steps, it's not possible to actually nail all of them. Well, at least for me. But this inner critic is evaluating against 10 or 100 of these, looking at it like a checklist, and is passing judgment, is passing comments. And here's the kicker. Is the critic actually being objective and precise? No. It is a prejudiced, judgmental opinion. It seems to depend on what side of the bed it got out this morning. But you listen to him and you think he's right, you encourage him. That needs to stop. Think about days when you had a great training session or a brilliant run where you felt refreshed and you came back beaming and positively glowing. I'm willing to bet that somehow that day, the critic shut up or was otherwise occupied. Now, while I am a textbook follower for technical instruction, I'm also the don't think, feel, club because on days when feel overrides it is almost magical and when I analyze my training days the days I've learned the most and enjoyed the most are the days when the critic was absent now trying to shut it up does not work and off and backfires what I do, and it's not anywhere close to a 100% success rate, what I do is a combination of being aware of what I'm doing. Now, in training, this works as a great proprioception drill. That's just jargon for where is your joint in space. You know, if I tell you to get your chest up, but instead of opening your chest or getting your chest up, you lift your chin 
And this also has the added advantage of giving the critic something to observe. This is something I've been intuitively doing for many years and a recent foray into a book indicates that it is a great method to do this. The second thing I do is removing emotion from what did not go well. Criticizing myself after a bad rep or even encouraging myself that I can do better. Because inherently I'm passing judgment on that rep. Instead of going and shaking my head and that kind of stuff, just on to the next rep. And it also helps when I put more positivity into what I did right. Or if it felt good, you know, a fist bump or a high five to myself and then just move on. When I try to replicate that rep, oh, this went right, let's try and do that again. Oh, it does not work. So obviously from this, what I've understood, the critic hovers around not only in my training sessions, but all the time as I write as I'm speaking, as I'm recording this, as I read, as I'm talking to people. And hopefully I'm able to transfer more lessons into more. And then there's the part of me that starts overthinking, or is that in itself a judgment? The more we can give the critic something to do, the more your natural tendencies come out to play, which more often than not seems to be a good thing. That's the first post. The second one, three quotes, starting with this one by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. An idea starts to be interesting when you get scared of taking it to its logical conclusion. Stephen Pressfield talks about this. He refers to it as the resistance and he also uses the excessive resistance that you feel when you are going to do something. That's what indicates that it's the right thing to do. And similarly, Taleb talks about it. And I've seen it to be true in very few instances. And in a present scenario where I am or have been debating something for a while, and yeah, it's when I'm able to detach, it seems to make sense and sounds extremely interesting to go down that path. But whoa, it is scary. So maybe that's an indication. The second quote from Bruce Lee, only actions give to life its strength as only moderation gives it its charm, end quote. 
I've been in a book buying frenzy for a few months. And by few months, I mean 16. And every time I finish a book, I realize that there are five more that I need to read now and I should have bought yesterday. And with the added time that I've had over the last year and some, I've been able to listen to more podcasts, which means oh, more sources, more books. And one important and obvious realization, which unfortunately was not obvious at all to me, is what am I taking out of these books and applying in my life? Because when I'm reading, oh, yes, wow, this is golden. This is amazing. This is life-changing, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But if I don't actually act on it, if I don't actually apply it into my existing framework somewhere or test it out somewhere, it's useless. I need to put whatever the author says into context and into action. And I realize that's my gap. The second part of the quote where Bruce Lee talks about moderation, uh, it's something I could write a lot about. It's an expert move. It seems to be the answer to how much should you exercise or how much should you eat and things like that. It's hard. All right. The final quote by Derek Sivers. When people would ask, what are you doing to grow your company? I'd say, nothing. I'm trying to get it to stop growing. I don't like this. It's too big. They thought that was the weirdest thing. Doesn't every business want to be as big as possible? No. Make sure you know what makes you happy and don't forget it. End quote. Derek provides a great counterpoint to what is the common approach that most of us take. The company needs to grow, right? Except, must it? And at least how I look at it is he's not saying don't grow, but you need to know what you define success as, what you define growth as, not more revenue, more people, but whatever it is you define it as. So can we instead take time to understand what growth means, what fun means for us? Which is a great segue into the final post for today. What makes you tick? You don't know what you don't know. When I was in 12th standard, I didn't know much. Unfortunately, I did not know, I didn't know anything. College apparently meant engineering because that's what everybody was saying. Because I had always written code and I was going to study computer science. Career meant writing code. 
And so with the blind naivety of youth, I blundered along. I did what everyone around me was doing, assumed that would be the right answer, without realizing that everyone around me was not everyone. I just surrounded myself with a community of people that I felt at home with, and that was my worldview. And of course, that's what that's why it was my worldview, because that's all my world was. I also assumed that once you made a choice into what your career was, you were locked in. That was that. You did that for the rest of your life. Plus, anyway, work was inevitable. It was what you did as an adult. Like you pay taxes. You worked so you could actually do other things in life. Today I realize that none of these were true. I was constructing flawed mental models based on flawed assumptions. Work doesn't have to be dreary or boring. Work can and is probably the most rewarding thing out there. It better be if you're going to spend quite a bit of time on it. It should also not be the only thing. Not even close, right? Relationships, experiences, whatever other things that life comprises of, of which work is one integral component. I quit my first career to go to grad school. I quit my second career, which I went to grad school for, to move back to Madras. And my third career over the last 10 years has always been a combination, a blend of many things of personal discovery and reinvention. And even if I am doing the same thing on paper, let's say coaching class, it's not the same thing because the context and experiences keep changing. And this sparks maybe one realization that seems to be true today. It is irrelevant whether you want to do the same thing for 50 years or you want to do 50 different things. Because as long as you're growing, as long as you're in the moment, as long as you're pushing yourself forward, maybe that's all that matters. So what assumptions have I made? What flawed assumptions have I made? What assumptions were true back then, but not today? So I can remake them today. Is being, let's take success, right? Is being successful inventing Facebook? Then what about all the crap associated with it? The stress of it? The election rigging? The research that social media usage has increased depression and whatever? Well, what about founding Nike? It's a great thing, right? It's a crazy big company. It sponsors the world's greatest athletes. And it makes amazing shoes. Except what about all the research talking about how shitty shoes have led us 
to losing our arches and to ankle mobility problems and a bunch of issues further upstream. Well, the success, this little known janitor from Vermont, Richard Reed, who lived in a modest home, worked a modest job, and left behind $8 million when he passed away, donating $6 million or whatever to his local library. What about all the successful people we never hear about? The ones who are genuinely content, who are doing what they are here to do, who are not yelling that they are successful and happy, who are not playing these social media games, who are maybe won the money game and said enough is enough, who decided to opt out, who decided that the games that most of us seem to be playing are pointless or uninteresting. The ones that the media does not portray because they don't sell ads and they don't care to talk about themselves because they're above it. Well, it all depends on what you define success as and without that, you'll always be chasing someone else's dreams. Maybe you're scared to go against the grain. For example, right, not having enough money in the bank is a scary proposition. But equally scary is not defining what that enough means. Like what if you keep moving goalposts once you get there? What if more money does not mean more success, but you're too caught up, too scared? I don't know, but I guess it starts with defining success and defining enough. The more perspectives, the more stories, the more conversations we can have, the more we can grow our worldview. Not to copy, not to imitate, not to ape one of those, but to see what all strike a chord deep within us and then to make our own concoction, our own alloy of all that we see and by listening to ourselves deeply. What makes you tick? What drives you? What warms your heart? What makes you produce your best? Not finding that out for yourself, and instead playing other people's games, even if you play it well, well, that's anti-success. Figure out your own game, figure out your own dreams, and chase them. Well, that's that, folks. Thanks for listening. And just to be clear, even though I use you, 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 I am talking to myself for the most part when I write and do these kind of things. As always, I'd 
appreciate your feedback and comments. So do send them back. You have a good one, and I'll see you here next week. Bye-bye. This is Coach AA signing off. <laughs>